Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Today's show is Concentrating Caliban. Our opening song is Phantasmus, off of the 2012 release Kutan by Adrian Terrazas Gonzalez. The deeply racist, Nobel Prize-winning novelist William Faulkner once wrote in his 1951 novel Requiem for a Nun that the past isn't dead, it's not even past. In that same book, Faulkner has the nun, which carries the meaning of prostitute in Shakespeare's time, a black drug addict named Nancy, all for that salvation comes from suffering. And though this is God's will, it's also something of an unseen consequence of his role as master over so many souls like a man who's got too many mules penned in his pasture. Quote, All of a sudden, one morning, he looks around and sees more mules than he can count at one time even, let alone find work for. When Monday morning comes, he can walk in there and hem some of them up and even catch them if he's careful about not never turning his back on the ones he ain't hemmed up, and that, once the gear is on them, they will do his work and do it good, only he's still got to be careful about getting too close to them or forgetting that another one of them is behind him, even when he's feeding them. Even when it's Saturday noon again and he is turning them back into the pasture, where even a mule can know it's got till Monday morning anyway to run free in mule sin and mule pleasure. Unquote. Again, that's the Nobel Prize winning William Faulkner. Today, we'll share selections from past shows in order to offer perspectives on this concentration of mules, or if I may allegorize the allegory, a concentration of calibans, those humans apparently not made in the image of some deity, but rather made to be used by those who do shine forth the rays of divine white conquest. We begin with Dan Nemser on the infrastructures of race. He was interviewed by Cole Nelson. Nemser's work focuses on how the Spanish organized colonial Mexico in the 17th century, and how oddly familiar all of that still is today, particularly in the large cities of the U.S. He calls these forms of concentration. We mainly stay in the 17th century for the next segment, which selects from Prospero's Roaring War. And again, we allegorize. Here is a play that shows a world in transition from feudalism to capitalism, from alchemy to chemistry, where power and conquest shift modes, but the order of beings remains the same, and Caliban knows the score. Helen Scott is our guide here. And finally, we leap into the 20th century and hear racist condescension, as Malcolm X explains the meaning of X, from our show on black-mindedness with author Michael Sawyer. Honestly, where has 300 years gotten us? There are still concentrations of penned-up people in ghettos across the nation. And now, here's Cole Nelson with Dan Nemser to begin our show, Concentrating Caliban, on Interchange, on WFHB. So to sort of shift gears a little bit and position the conversation around your epilogue, the epilogue to your book, where you introduce the concept of primitive racialization. I was wondering if you can sort of give give a little depth to that, the, the concept that you introduce, how it sort of extends from uh, Marx's notion of primitive accumulation tied to the development of 
a capitalist mode of production and sort of the understanding of that historical development, but how you then go beyond this by introducing the, a recognition of the constitution of subjects, of racialized subjects, um, how its sort of infrastructural component allows us to, as you say, unforget the foundational violence of racial infrastructures. Marx's discussion of uh, primitive accumulation, I think, is is really important, especially for uh, folks like me who who are interested in um, the early modern and and especially the colonial period, because it tries to grapple with the the essentially it tries to grapple with transition. Right? How does uh, capitalism emerge out of something that's not capitalism? Basically, Marx argues that capitalism, he's, it's a historical mode of production, right, that emerges out of something different, feudalism, and that it can't emerge out of its own, from its own sort of laws of motion. It has to emerge out of something different. And he argues that it emerges out of these sort of violent processes of dispossession that uh, produce, on the one hand, that, 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 that produce, on the one hand, uh, a kind of population that doesn't have any access to the means of production or the means of subsistence. The maybe peasants who used to live on the land, but who now don't have access to that, to that land or to the commons. And instead, in order to survive, they have to take jobs in factories and work for a wage. And on the other hand, primitive accumulation produces a class of people, capitalists, who have access to a lot of capital that they can then use to bring together those the labor power, higher labor power, and also other kind of materials, right, to invest in a kind of a production process. So for Marx, there's a kind of capitalism has violent origins. And in uh, the first volume of Capital, Marx, this is one of the places where Marx talks a lot about colonialism. He says that the colonization of the Americas um, and the slave trade were the some of the, the the chief moments of primitive accumulation that set capitalism in motion. On the one hand, I, I think uh, what's important about that is that again, the question is how does capitalism emerge out of something that's not capitalism? And thinking about those violent foundations also helps us sort of maintain a horizon of political possibility that. Uh, you know, capitalism isn't just the way things are. It's a historical system that can end, right? Things haven't always been this way. Now, there's uh, a parallel to the way that I talk about race in the book as well. And that's where I kind of come to this concept of primitive racialization. Um, in one sense, uh, as kind of a direct historical sense, you know, as I mentioned before, uh, in this in this discussion of primitive primitive accumulation, Marx talks about colonization, enslavement, um, and and these these kind of these pro these violent processes that are very much tangled up with racialized populations. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Segment producer Cole Nelson is in conversation with Dan Nemser about his book Infrastructures of Race, which shows that the techniques of Spanish colonial governance, such as creating centralized and segregated towns and disciplinary institutions like prisons and schools, produced racialized bodies and hence the continuing concepts of race. Marxist critics like Silvia Federici take that argument a step further and say, 
it's not only that primitive accumulation targets racialized bodies, indigenous people in the Americas, black people in Africa. Um, it's that, uh, which, which is kind of what Marx, you know, seems to suggest. It's that primitive accumulation actually produces race um, as part of its process of dispossession in the same way that for Federici, primitive accumulation produces gender by dispossessing um, women of their autonomy over their own bodies and producing them as a kind of a naturalized, uh, uh, a natural source of children, essentially. So if we accept Federici's argument, then primitive accumulation produces race uh, as part of its process, general process of dispossession that includes, you know, the, the creating the sort of conditions for capitalism to take place. So there's a historical argument about that, about primitive accumulation and sort of racialization or primitive racialization. But there's another piece of it, which I think is um, also important, which is simply that um, uh, if capitalism has these violent origins that produced capitalism out of something that wasn't capitalism, there's actually a, really, a lot of similarity there with um, the way that race is produced, right? If we accept that, as I've been saying uh, that race is the product of material processes of racialization rather than being something that inheres in bodies or populations to begin with. Um, then we also have to think about how a racial way of organizing humanity was produced out of something that was not a racial way of you know, imagining humanity. And uh, in the same way that um, capitalism can come to feel normalized, can come to seem just like the way, like the way things are. Um, they're just natural laws that humans and that humans sort of obey because of the way they are. Um, race can come to seem naturalized as well. That it, you know, once we start saying, assuming that race is part of bodies, is it is it inheres in bodies, um, that there are people who fall into different groups, right? Whether whatever we take those associations the associations that those groups have, the meanings that those, that those categories have, whatever we take those meanings and associations to be, um, we still take for granted that there are such things as groups that have racial identities, right? And what primitive racialization forces us to grapple with is, is are the violent foundations of those groups, those categories that can come to be racialized, um, and that, uh, and, and for whom, you know, racial meanings and attributes, to whom racial meanings and attributes can be attached and, and changed and altered um, over, over time. So in the same way that primitive accumulation forces us to think about, you know, the, the violent origins of the capitalist mode of production, how that emerged out of something different, um, primitive racialization uh, forces us to grapple with how race emerged out of something that was not race and also a kind of a, a political horizon in which race as a category of domination can be abolished. This is Interchange on WFHB. It's our fall fun drive, and that means we're asking for money. That's how the station operates. We can't go on without you. Go to WFHB.org, find that big red donate button on the right-hand side of the page, and click it to commit to this community partnership. Listen, support, empower. WFHB. Coming up, Dan Nemser tells us how botany plays a role in the segregation of humans by color characteristics. (laughs) 
You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Segment producer Cole Nelson is in conversation with Dan Nemser about his book, Infrastructures of Race, which shows that the techniques of Spanish colonial governance, such as creating centralized and segregated towns and disciplinary institutions like prisons and schools, produced racialized bodies and hence the continuing concepts of race. And it, it becomes especially clear and, and explicitly in your conversation on uh, botany um, that these sort of pseudoscientific practices of abstraction, city planning, uh, population management, uh, cartography, and um, other, other sort of forms of measurement and segmentation of, of space more generally um, become instrumentalized in this, in this racialization process. Um, and so within within that sort of framework, can can you discuss botany as as a practice that um, that lent itself to to this racial project of of the colonial state? I think the botanical garden uh, is a useful way to track how concentration becomes a kind of a scientific technique, right? Um, there's a there's there's a there's a way in which the botanical garden, which again is not aiming to concentrate bodies of people, but it is aiming to concentrate and kind of manage life, right? Um, and it gives us a good way to think about um, or to see how the techniques of concentration uh, are emerge in, in, or come, come into a relation with, with science, right? In the context of the enlightenment in the 18th century. So on the one hand, the botanical garden highlights how uh, spaces of concentration come to be mediated by scientific forms of management, like uh, precise calculation, like you were talking about, but also experimentation, right? You could say, oh, maybe this way of concentrating plants will work better, uh, will, will help them survive better than this other way, right? And so you can, you can do experiments, you can run experiments um, about, about the, the, the plants that you're bringing into the, the, the garden. And so in that sense, um, not only is uh, concentration kind of like the, the concentrated spaces, the architectures of concentration become kind of regulated by scientific practices, but also concentration becomes a kind of a technique, a scientific technique, right? Uh, one of the tools that scientists have uh, in order to, you know, develop, to build, to generate new knowledge about the world. And specifically, what I talk about in this last chapter uh, about the botanical garden is a kind of an emergence of an idea about how uh, environmental conditions um, shape the bodies or the life on which they act. Um, and there's a lot of uh, resonance between the way that um, Spanish scientists or Sp Mexican colonial Mexican or Spanish colonial scientists um, talk about the effects of environment on human bodies and the effects of environment on plant bodies. Uh, you know, just thinking about, you know, the, the idea that, you know, it's the sun that makes skin, that, that makes skin darker, right? And so there are enlightenment scientists uh, in France and, and other parts of the world who suggest, you know, well, if we could, uh, black people are black because they live under a really hot sun. And if we could take them and enclose them in a room in Denmark, um, we could, figure out how many generations it would take for them to become white again. Um, and obviously that's, it's obviously a form of 
<laughs> racial terror, right? Totally dependent on uh, the slave trade, right? It's a sort of sci- form of scientific knowledge that's totally dependent on slavery and the slave trade. But it's also Im- impracticable in, in, in scientific terms. And in a way, the kind of experimentation with plants, uh, which take uh, a much shorter time to display changes due to their environment, seem to offer a way to think about race, a, a more effective uh, way to think about and learn about um, race by studying the effect of environmental factors on life. And in this sense, uh, there's, a, there's a way of thinking about race, a, a different way of thinking about race that comes from the Brazilian critic, um, Denise Ferreira Silva, who talks about race as the kind of difference between those bodies that are affectable, that are affectable in, in the sense that they're, they're shaped by external determination, whether it's natural processes like environment or colonialism, for example. And on the other hand, those bodies that are kind of autonomous, uh, or she calls it transparent, those, those bodies that, that are not affected by external determination. Um, Silva uh, explores how race is not really just only about fixed bodies, which is something that a lot of critics um, assume, that it's when bodies become uh, fixed, when people start to imagine bodies as fixed, that race as a concept begins to emerge. Rather, she shows how some bodies are always assumed to be fixed and other bodies are always assumed to be uh, affectable or moldable, changeable. Um, and the study of how the external factor, how, how external factors um, shape those bodies is essentially ends up being a study of race. I'm Doug Storm, and this is Interchange on WFHB. It's our fall fun drive, and yes, I want you to take the time right now to open your browser, go to WFHB.org, and click on the red Donate button on the right side of the page. This is necessary. About 70% of our operating budget comes from you and your friends. I know, your friends listen too. One of the difficulties faced in funding something like a community radio station, a nonprofit entity, in other words, no one's in this to profit, is that it's always on and you're always receiving the product, so to speak. It's like it's free. I mean, it's freely available, which is like just walking into the grocery store or coffee shop and getting what you want and walking out. That doesn't happen, of course. WFHB trusts you to support us, but we still have to ask for it to remind you about the great resource that you know is there and that you value greatly as an example of how our community stands tall. So it's time. Though this resource is invaluable, we are asking you to monetize it. Call us at 812-323-1200 to make a donation or go to wfhb.org to make a secure online donation via bank transfer or by credit or debit card. It's easy and it's quick. And, as I said, it's necessary. We appreciate all donations and especially benefit when you pledge an automatic monthly donation like $10 or $20. This makes it much easier to budget for our needs, like new equipment that will help us get back to live broadcasting from our homes as we, like you, wait out COVID's effects and stay out of the WFHB studios. 
That's it. Call or go online and give. It's necessary. WFHB is necessary. Call 812-323-1200 or go to WFHB.org to show how much you value our relationship with you. Back to the show. We've been listening to the Miles Davis Quintet from 1967 with The Sorcerer. As it leads us into our next segment, which features Prospero and Caliban in Shakespeare's The Tempest, an Ur text showing the underlying racism that fueled and funded the transition from feudalism to capitalism. Our guest was Helen Scott from the University of Vermont, and the show was Prospero's Roaring War. Let's start with a little background on The Tempest. It's the last play by Shakespeare that's fully his own work, and this is 1611. Yeah, that's right. 1611. And so you already mentioned the transition from feudalism to capitalism, perhaps, and uh, sort of the dying of the old order and uh, morphing or transforming into something new. Um, so what's what's 1611? What's, what is going on? How is this happening in, a, uh, I guess, a more historical way versus the, the action in this play? Right. It's an early moment in mercantile capitalism and an early moment in English colonial exploration. Of course, the Spanish and Portuguese colonial empires were well established by now, but England was kind of jumping in. And there was the beginning of colonization of the Americas and a kind of ongoing larger economic transformation of the society from a society based on land and inheritance and uh, a kind of static sense of people being born and dying in the same place to a society based on money in which people could change status and also things were changing very rapidly. Under feudal society, there was an expectation of continuity for generations, that was no longer the case. And so that kind of sense of a mercurial, ever-changing moment that was uh, frightening and also exhilarating, I think marks that period. There's been dispossession at this point, right? There's uh, there's yeah. um, um, the loss of the commons, uh, enclosures have happened, and people are uh, also heading into cities, right? So London is growing or has grown um, or will be growing quite exponentially at this period. Devastating dispossessions. Um, in, in England, basically, the peasantry was being systematically kicked off the land that it had lived on. Um, and criminalized. You know, there were, it was a double whammy. It was like, you can no longer live on that land because it's it's going, it's going being taken away from you by you know, big landowners. Um, and then you won't have any means of living, but you will be criminalized for being homeless. Mm, right. <laughs> so it was a very brutal period. And, and that was in England. And of course, on the global scale, there was the dispossession of indigenous populations um, that was ongoing. And the beginnings of enslavement, not quite yet the the chattel slavery that would be central to the triangular slave trade, but the conditions that enabled that were in place. Um, and there was unfree labor in, in the New World already. The play is about enslavement. You know, it, mm-hmm. it is about dispossession. It is about usurpation. Um, it is about 
torturing witches. Um, it's about incarceration. So those things certainly take on different meaning over time. D- to ignore them is to um, change the play radically. Mm. Tonight thou shalt have cramps, side stitches that shall pen thy breath up. Urchin shall for that past of night that they may work all exercise on thee. Thou shalt be pinched as sick as honeycomb, each pinch more stinging than bees that made them. I do want to, I think, back up a bit just to, to talk about Sycorax first, simply because she's not in the play. She's a character named and described only by other characters, um, Caliban and Prospero um, in particular, and she's the blue-eyed witch, right. which is fascinating in itself. So Sycorax is an like a very important presence and as as we sort of will go through and think about how she has been displaced in fact she herself was um displaced onto the island so again the island is not sycorax's island either um so she is an as you said i think algiers in the play she's an african uh quote-unquote witch the action proper i guess starts with sycorax or the history of the play or the history of the island yeah I mean, that whole question of whose island, you know, who does the island belong with? I mean, it is, it is all about land and ownership. Right, right. And you're right. Certainly the dramatis personae as we have inherited it says that the action takes place on an uninhabited island. That's clearly not the case. Certainly Sycorax and Caliban were on the island before Prospero. So it wasn't an uninhabited island. Mm-hmm. Um, and Caliban actually claims his right to the island. This, this island's is mine by Sycorax, my, my mother, which thou takest from me. Which is interesting because he's claiming ownership through the maternal line. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, obviously Shakespearean England, deeply patriarchal. Um, inheritance usually went through the male line. Mm-hmm. Um, but And it has to be said that um, Caliban knows the island better than anybody else and he has i think the most beautiful speeches in the play um, and those speeches describe the island in ways that are stunning you know and emotionally powerful and and beautiful when thou camest first thou strokest me and made much of me which give me water with berries in it and teach me how to name the bigger light and how the less that burn by day and night. And then I loved thee and showed thee all the qualities of the isle, the fresh springs, brine pits, barren place and fertile. Cursed be I that did so. All the charms of Sycorax, toads, beetles, bats, light on you. For I am all the subjects that you have which first was mine own king, and here you sty me in this hard rock, whilst you do keep from me the rest of the island. So that implies somewhat of a counter-narrative to Prospero, whose claim to the island is purely through force. He's a late arrival and um, is used to being duke and takes control. 
Yes. But does he know and understand the island? No, he gets all of that from Caliban and Ariel. Nor does he seem to be interested in the island whatsoever. It, the, again, the play, because it starts with this shipwreck, is uh, the island becomes all about taking back the dukedom or taking back royal power, getting back to where he was before. It's, it's the island exists as, as the shipwreck does, as a function for the action of Prospero's magic or art. Yeah, right. It's purely instrumental. Mm. This is Interchange on WFHB. It's our fall fun drive, and that means we're asking for money. This is how the station operates. We can't go on without you. Go to WFHB.org, find that big red donate button on the right-hand side of the page, and click it to commit to this community partnership. Listen, support, empower. WFHB. Coming up, Helen Scott on Shakespeare's Tempest and the transition from feudalism to capitalism. you can read it again at the level of plot it is a a classic play of feudal restoration and in that economy of representation Antonio and Sebastian Prospero's brother and the king's brother they're younger brothers under the feudal order that means they don't inherit at this moment in time in history there is a kind of challenge to that notion of primogeniture, right, that the, only the oldest son inherits. And there's this kind of new economy where there's the possibility of the, quote, self-made man. Mm-hmm. In many ways, Antonio and Sebastian are demonized as being the ambitious self-made men. They want to disrupt the feudal order. You know, they're willing to kill Alonso so that they can inherit. It, again, it's very dangerous to be too allegorical, but it's hard not to think about Sebastian Antonio as the kind of proto-capitalist. Um, and Prospero then is the symbol of the old feudal order. Mm-hmm. It's still not that long since James took over as, as king. And in the periods you know, leading up to Elizabeth's death, the theatres were pretty much banned from any discussion of succession hmm. because it was such an unfixed question. So there's something very dangerous about having such explicit discussions. You know, it is a play about people challenging who is the king, who mm-hmm. is the, who's in control. It does account for why it's so fascinating and why it's so pliable. It's a play that has led to more critical debates and radically different appropriations. Um, And I think that we can trace that back to this very unsettled, contradictory, paradoxical, self-referential oppositions, including centrally the opposition between nature and art. Prospero is repeatedly associated with art, my art, and he he refers to his magic as my art. Mm -hmm. The elves of hills, brooks, standing lakes, and groves, and ye that on the sands with printless foot do chase the ebbing Neptune, and do fly him when he comes back, you demi-puppets, that by moonshine do the green sour ringlets make, whereof the yew not bites. And you, 
whose pastime is to make midnight mushrooms, that rejoice to hear the solemn curfew, by whose aid, weak masters though ye be, I have bedimmed the noontide sun, called forth the mutinous winds, and twixt the green sea and the azured vault, set roaring war. To the dread rattling thunder have I given fire, and rifted Jove's stout oak with his own boat. The strong base promontory have I made shake, and by the spurs plucked up the pine and cedar. Graves at my command have waked their sleepers, hoped and let them fall by my so potent art. to point to the idea of Prospero and his art or magic being a part of, um, I guess, managing sort of, you know, nature or being able to manipulate nature to to create things and the idea of, uh, you know, capitalism beginning to, uh, as you say, dispossess, as Prospero dispossesses uh, yeah. the inhabitants of the island, again, to make his magic. I don't know what he could do without Ariel, but it's his books, right? His liberal arts, his understanding of the way the world works that gives him his power. And it's that dispossession that starts things. So that's kind of the, the unfair advantage of capitalism is it takes uh, and gets wealth initially and then puts that wealth to use through a knowledge of, of nature and how to manipulate it. And this is all how it's beginning. Right, exactly. And that I think that way of seeing the play as a play that is centrally about that act of initial primitive accumulation, Prospero takes the land and uses the labor of Caliban and Ariel, um, that takes on particular significance in the 21st century during this new phase of dispossession. Mm. So certainly in the beginning of the 21st century, we see a move towards new interrogations of and analyses of this period and what is called in Marxist terms, the primitive accumulation of capital. Mm -hmm. And David Harvey, you know, introduced a very um, influential concept of a new um, accumulation by dispossession that capitalism was experiencing going into the 21st century, which involved new rounds of dispossessions globally of indigenous people um, and the complete spread of capitalism throughout the world so that there's you really can't point to any part of the world that is not dominated by capitalism and integrated into a world system. I'm not making an argument, I'm not making some sort of straight argument about an allegory or certainly not making any argument that, that you know, Shakespeare was offering a critique of early capitalism. That That's just not feasible. But I think it's possible to say that the way that the Tempest captures these tumultuous upheavals, including dispossessions, global dispossessions, the way that that's kind of embedded in the text takes on particular meaning in the late phase of capitalism. And today, you know, in, with capitalism facing its old age and the threat of planetary 
dissolution, right? The, the, the idea that our, our entire society, our entire world is in peril. How does art, the art that we inherit, offer insight into you know, what sustains this system? And more explicitly right now, this notion of capitalism being you know, the sorcerer who, whose powers are out of control and now threatened to destroy the earth itself and its people, yay all which it inherit, is crystal clear. Do not be afeard. The isle is full of noises, sounds and sweet airs that give delight and hurt not. Sometimes a thousand twangling instruments will hum about mine ears, and sometimes voices that if I then had waked after long sleep would make me sleep again. And then in dreaming the clouds methought would open and show riches ready to drop upon me. That when I waked, I cried to dream again. That was Richard Burton as Caliban in the 1960 Hallmark Hall of Fame television production of The Tempest. Yes, you heard that right. I'm Doug Storm, and this is Interchange on WFHB. It's our fall fun drive at WFHB, one of the only times we ask you for, well, really anything. A community radio station, run nearly entirely by volunteers, asks primarily for attention. Because it's our mission, our mandate, to support diverse voices speaking to and about our shared and distinct life experiences. We do this through our music and our news and public affairs programming all day, every day. We can't do it without you. Compare this minimal diversion from regular listening with the constant interruptions on commercial radio which make plain the content is advertising, not music or news programming. Community radio flips that on its head. Our content is actually our programming, nearly 70% of it produced by volunteers. I'm a volunteer producing Interchange, and my goal, which I hope is on clear display in tonight's anthology, is to bring history and art and politics into critical relation, to lay bare as best I can the shaping forces in the world and the ways we can recognize them and how they form the borders of our possibilities. In doing this, I want to make those borders porous. Your support of WFHB is a support for me to make this show, to bring ideas into dialogue, and to be a kind of representative of your curiosity. And I thank you for the opportunity. To continue the process, I'm asking for your money. Let's not beat around the bush about it. Call 812-323-1200 or go online to make a secure donation at WFHB.org. Click on the big red donate button. You can't miss it. We get the most benefit from your gift if you pledge a monthly amount via bank transfer or debit or credit card. Any amount is great. I personally support programming on WFHB for $20 a month. Again, thank you for listening and loving what community radio brings to your life. Back to the show. We've been listening to Haitian Fight Song by Charles Mingus. The Haitian Revolution was the only slave uprising that led to the founding of a state which was both free from slavery and ruled by non-whites and former captives. In our show, Marking Revolution, Malcolm X and Black-Mindedness, with author Michael Sawyer, we discovered, perhaps surprisingly, that Malcolm X thought there could be a bloodless revolution that might free black people. But we begin with racist condescension. 
and the meaning of X. Point to a program coming out of Chicago called City Desk that aired on March 17, 1963 with Malcolm X on it. And I'll be honest, I think it's an interview that everyone should listen to as much for its smug white interlocutors than anything else. It is a, it's a fascinating interview. It's a, and, and Malcolm X actually does a, a brilliant job in it as well. Malcolm. Twice you've referred to, to the Negroes, the so-called Negroes. You, you find uh, some fault with this description, yes. I gather. Mr. Muhammad teaches us that uh, Negro is a term that was applied to us during slavery by the slave master. And to write it right today, it's a term that is used only to point out the descendant of slaves. It's never used for black people, period. Africans can come to this country. They aren't called Negroes. And if they are called Negroes, they resent it. So if Negro meant black, as we've been taught, it would be a term that would be applicable to or pliable to everyone. Uh, but he says that it is something that means a slave or something who is, it means something uh, that has been left out of society, politically, economically, uh, educationally, and otherwise. You don't think of it as an anthropological term? Definitely. It's not an anthropological term. It's a slave term. And it was a term that was invented in America and was used by the slave makers, slave traders, and slave masters and attached to the property or the chattel uh, or merchandise that our people represented in that particular day. What is your real name? Malcolm. Malcolm X. Uh, is that your legal name? As far as I'm concerned, it's my legal name. Have you been to court to establish the I don't. I, I didn't have to go to court to be called Murphy or Jones or Smith. The same slave master who owned us uh, put his last name on us to denote that we were his property. So that when you see a Negro today who's named Johnson, if you go back in his history, you'll find that he was once his grandfather or one of his forefathers was owned by a white man who was named Johnson. His name is Bunch. His, his grandfather was owned by a I white man point. that was uh, named Bunch. Would you mind telling me what your father's last name was? My father didn't know his last name. My father got his last name from his grandfather, and his grandfather got it from his grandfather, who got it from the slave master. The real names of our people were destroyed well, during was there slavery. Any, was there any line... Uh, any point in, in the genealogy of your family when you did have to use the last name, and if so, what was it? The last name of my forefathers yeah. was taken from them when they were brought to America and made slaves. And then the name of the slave master was given, which we refuse. We reject that name today. You mean, you, mean to... you won't even tell me what your father's supposed last name was or gifted last name was? I never acknowledge it whatsoever. Why, why do you choose this, this particular interview? It's an example of this notion of what I call thinking in motion that Malcolm is doing. And he doesn't have, you know, as, as you examine his kind of biographical situation, he doesn't have the same type of interlocutors around him that someone like Martin Luther King did, like Rustin, or even for that matter, you know, people internal to the SCLC who were his intellectual equals or interested in the same type of of discourse, he actually had to go into these oppositional spaces almost constantly and have these kinds of arguments, right? So what this interview takes up 
from the very beginning is to is to deny his existence and to force him to describe himself and to say what they want him to say is his last name. And he refuses it. And I think that he's staking out ontological ground in that argument. He just won't do it. And um, they keep trying to get him to do it and are like frustrated by it. And then they actually go forward and try to bait him simply by saying the name of Elijah Muhammad's. Um, I guess slave uh, master oriented name, right? Uh, in an attempt to draw Malcolm into that same space. And this is why I'm saying you can see these kind of notions of two systems of thinking clashing and these boundaries, because what they're trying to do is to, to recapture him. And he's already freed himself in that way by disallowing them to define him by forcing him into a genealogy that he's tracing back to kind of slavery. He's saying, I acknowledge, I know it exists, but I'm disavowing it with this practice of naming. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a specific interview about the nation of Islam more than Malcolm X, right? Right. Yeah, this is still when Malcolm is is internal to the nation of Islam. And he's at that point is the primary spokesman for the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. So much of what they're up to is also to to render his thinking kind of idiosyncratic or, you know, kind of intellectual quackery to make it seem like this is some type of absurd system of thought. And and to situate it as a type of uh, black supremacy or a kind of hatred, abstract hatred of white people. And he resists all of that at the same time. But it flows from this perspective. The way I understand it, it flows from this notion of ontology and naming becomes the primary point of focus. Yeah, just the, even uh, the way that language is used here is important also. And as you say, the um, naming of uh, the being itself, right? So the Negro is a named being that is a non-being. And they're contending, you know, they're Malcolm and, uh, of course, uh, Elijah Muhammad, Nation of Islam, contending that Negro is a, a, a slave appellation, a, a word created by the slave nation, the slave master, uh, that that they object to, obviously, but also in how they phrase it, the so-called Negro um, rejects it as well. And uh, I do, I I was really just impressed at at the way not only they kept trying to push him on that point. Right. Um, asking if it was anthropological. Um, and then also the way he would, I guess I would say slip and just say Negro, right? He'd slip and just say Negro and they'd be like, Hey, you just said Negro. And he was like, it wasn't willful. Yeah. I mean, I think he's actually performing the notion of, of a journey towards being black minded, right? He's showing you how you can slip because the language traps you. And he tries to draw this distinction. And oftentimes when he's careful, it's fine, right? There's Negro, the so-called Negro, Black, Afro-American are the kind of four terms that he circles around. And each one of them has their own weight. And he's generally careful. But every now and then, because of that type of pressure, the language will will confound it. And so that's when we we ask about what it means to become black minded is to be able to to navigate that space with that with uh, without having to think about it. And he's working to become like that. So it's it's a process even for him. Yeah, no, it's it's really an impressive uh, interview. Uh, again, as much to watch white supremacists do their work. Yeah, absolutely, and to also and I and you know I think it's important what you're what you're proposing is to actually go and listen yeah. to Malcolm X because one of the things you miss in reading his speeches is just how funny he is yeah. and how quickly he's able to to respond. Right? It's, it's it's just kind of almost athlete, intellectual athleticism that's that's really profoundly interesting to pay attention to because he's one of the great thinkers of the 20th century and he's a profoundly not classically educated person. So it's fascinating from that perspective. (laughs) 
This is Interchange on WFHB. It's our fall fun drive, and that means we're asking for money. This is how the station operates. We can't go on without you. Go to WFHB.org. Find that big red donate button on the right-hand side of the page and click it to commit to this community partnership. Listen, support, empower. WFHB. Coming up, can a black revolution be bloodless without bullet or ballot? We continue with Michael Sawyer on Malcolm X. So there's no space left to move to, basically. Is there space within another space? So it's a, the, the ability to think of uh, the, the places you named already, like Harlem or Detroit, as colonies that could be self-governing colonies, a step on the way to a different world if the colony has allowed that space of marinage to operate on its own, to serve itself. Right. We'd be remiss if we didn't understand how important Marcus Garvey is to this conversation. So Garveyism and this notion of a return to Africa becomes the foundation of Malcolm X's thinking. Uh, both his father was a Garveyite and the broad acceptance of Garvey's propositions that happened in the early 20th century, right? And so what Malcolm X is, is trying to figure out, and this is how Malcolm X oftentimes gets reduced even on the progressive side of thinking, is that, oh, it's silly to imagine Black nationalism without a nation state. Abstractly, Malcolm X seems to be proposing that the body actually becomes a nation state and it's transportable. And so what he's saying is that the black body, the coerced black body, the subject of kind of white supremacy that can't find any extra space, right? The world is occupied and what he doesn't want to be about the business of doing is becoming a colonial power on their own, right? So there's no notion of black Americans arming themselves and going and taking over other spaces and displacing other people, right? That doesn't make any sense to him either. So what he's saying is that the space that has to be governed, the final kind of geographic space that, that black people have, and this is part of being black minded to fill up, fill the black mindedness with is actually the body. The body becomes something to be protected, becomes something with its own borders. Uh, it can accept things in, it can let things out and it's also transportable. So that allows a kind of transnational nationalism where this question of worldwide black revolution and worldwide black uh, presentism allows black people to then determine, self-determine what states they want to associate themselves with, whether they actually embody themselves in that space or not, they can associate themselves with them in order to be able to make an argument that they are being aggrieved and be able to use human rights at the level of the world court and the United Nations rather than being marginalized citizens within a colonized citizens within a place like the United States. As you have walked into revolution, the last chapter, let's go ahead and go there. Malcolm. If George Washington didn't get independence for this country nonviolently, and if Patrick Henry didn't come up with a nonviolent statement, and you uh, taught me to look upon them as patriots and heroes, then it's time for you to realize I have studied your books well. So 1964, we'll see the Negro revolt evolve and merge into the worldwide black revolution that has been taking place on this earth since 1945. The so-called revolt will become a real black revolution. Now, the black revolution has been taking place in Africa, in Asia, and in Latin America. When I say black, I mean non-white. Black, brown, red, or yellow. 
our brothers and sisters in Asia who were colonized by the Europeans, our brothers and sisters in Africa who were colonized by the Europeans, and in Latin America, the peasants who were colonized by the Europeans, have, they, have been involved in a struggle since 1945 to get the colonialists or the, the colonizing power, the Europeans, off their land, out of their country. This is a, a real revolution. Revolution is always based on land. Revolution is never based on begging somebody for an integrated cup of coffee. The essay used there is, or again, the speech uh, is The Black Revolution from April 1964. And it is, a, uh, you do focus on, or Malcolm X focuses on the UN Declaration of Human Rights uh, versus in, in stark opposition to the idea of civil rights. Why, how are those two different? Yeah, Malcolm X's kind of foundational point of concern with the civil rights movement is just that, right? He doesn't believe that civil rights can precede human rights. He thinks you have to have human rights and be accepted as a human being. This is, you know, this is basically French revolutionary orthodoxy, right? The rights of man and citizen. You can't have one without the other. It's not either or. So he's saying that you have to be understood to be human and, and treated as a human being. Then we can start talking about something like how that human being exists in a particular type of political formation. King's argument is just the opposite of that. He believes that in I shouldn't be so reductive, right? King has a complicated relationship to this. He begins to understand that human rights become profoundly important. Mm -hmm. But he also believes that the promise of democracy, the promise of the American democratic experiment can accommodate the existence of those who had been excluded but through the law, right? Through the relationship to the Constitution. This is Frederick Douglass believe this as well, right? And so Malcolm X is disinterested in that. And that's kind of foundational to everything we've been talking about as we get to this point of him finally when he gives that speech, the Black Revolution speech, which I read as a coherent relation to his other speech from the same time period, the Battle of the Bullet, is to then think about what it means to, to be a human being first and then start arguing for a relationship to different states is itself a revolutionary position. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have to be revolution in the way that we understand them from kind of, you know, the French Revolution kind of forward, where there are these bloody encounters. He actually proposes there's a possibility of a bloodless revolution to the extent that this can this can happen, that there are actual mechanisms set up that would allow uh, black people to be able to have their their situation adjudicated by some kind of earth earthly authority, right? The UN, a world court, whomever, and then be able to say that they have been mistreated and then have that repaired. I'm Doug Storm, and this is Interchange on WFHB. This is our fall fund drive where we ask you for money to support your community radio station. It's the only way we're able to operate. Most of the operating budget comes from listeners like you. Thank you. Today, Interchange shared segments from three episodes that aired throughout the year. They all three touched on aspects of our current moment without needing to really speak about this moment right now. We can look at the distant past or look at the near past, and we continue to find clues to our problems. And too often, these are glaringly obvious and still unheeded. Historical research can reveal the very human forms of social organization that we tend to see as natural, as we live within them. This research shows that they are man-made, and so can be unmade. We also heard how art can embody those forms, and allow us to see or hear differently when ideas are animated by poetry or drama. 
And finally, we were asked to hear how in many ways, nothing much has changed over the last 300 years. Even our very names can be changed to those tyrannous forms of concentration. It's hard to be asked to always be mindful of how so much of that past is concentrated in the present. But we must. Tomorrow depends on it. Support WFHB for the work we do to empower you to shape your future. Call us at 812-323-1200 for a one-time pledge of any amount. All donations are greatly appreciated. Or go online to make a secure donation at WFHB.org. Why not choose a monthly contribution of $10 or $20? It'll come out of your bank account or debit or credit card. That's a great way to offer predictability and stability to the station. Again, thank you for your support. And that's our show. We'll close with New Africa by Archie Shep off of The Way Ahead. And The Way Ahead for WFHB is your one-time gift of $75 or a monthly pledge of $10. See what I did there? Thank you as always for your support. I'm WFHB volunteer Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Cade Young is executive producer. This is Bloomington's community radio station, WFHB. Thanks for listening and for hearing us during Fall Fun Drive.